from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Well, we're on the road this week from the 49th Annual Missouri Governor's Conference on Agriculture here in Paradise, or Lake of the Ozarks, as they like to call it. And as Missouri celebrates the grit and resiliency of Missouri agriculture, we have a lot to cover over the next 60 minutes. The month-long labor strike is over as John Deere union members head back to work. Why some say an equipment bidding war has already begun. Trade was touched on during high-level talks between the U.S. and China as phase one trade deal comes to a close. A Missouri processing plant that's breaking the mold. That's as the Missouri Director of Agriculture says labor and processing capacity continues to be a focus in the show me state. The beef industry has had a lot of struggles in the last decade, and this is actually a bright spot for them. And giving back to FFA through a hay bale. It's half blue and half gold. A Missouri company on a mission to do good. Now for the news, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met for more than three hours virtually earlier this week. And while trade between the two countries was talked about, it wasn't a high priority during those talks. This was the third time the two leaders have spoken since Mr. Biden took office in January. The meeting covered a host of hot button issues from human rights to crypto mining. A senior U.S. administration official calling the talks respectful, straightforward and open. A healthy debate in which President Biden was clear and candid on a range of human rights concerns. In response, Xi telling Biden that China was, quote, ready to have dialogues on human rights on the basis of mutual respect, but opposed using human rights to meddle in other countries' internal affairs, end quote. And on trade, the president also pressing Xi to uphold China's commitments to the phase one trade deal. Our message to the administration has been that it is in our economic interest to keep trade going with China, even as we navigate these very large issues, which you know that are going to be on the agenda. President Biden said the two leaders have a responsibility to the world to ensure the U.S.-China relationship continues to evolve and that the competition between them does not veer into conflict. Also in Washington this week, President Biden signing the $1 trillion infrastructure bill into law. A bipartisan signing ceremony took place on the White House lawn. The legislation includes $550 billion for roads, bridges, ports, airports, as well as mass transit. The White House now turning its attention to its Build Back Better plan. The House approving the $1.75 trillion bill. It would create new social safety net programs, and also it has money earmarked to deal with climate issues and an expansion of USDA's debt forgiveness program. It now goes to the Senate where it is likely to face revisions. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he hopes to have the chamber pass the bill before Christmas. Well, the American Farm Bureau Federation has come out against the Build Back Better Act. President Zippy Duval saying in a statement, quote, while some elements of the re reconciliation package would benefit agriculture, the massive amount of spending and tax increase required to pay for the plan outweigh the gains we would see in rural America. Well, while ships continue to stack up off the California coast, there is better news when it comes to containers stacked at the docks. The ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach now delaying finding shipping companies that let their cargo set at the terminals. The director of the Port of Los Angeles reporting significant improvements in the clearing out of containers over the past few weeks ahead of fines being put into place. 
Well, another issue at West Coast ports, getting U.S. products, including ag, out of the country. Right now, the cost to ship a container from China to the U.S. is more than 17 times as much as the cost of shipping that same container from the U.S. to China. But good news for shippers, bad news for moving product out of the U.S. That's all while the world's largest container shipping line and vessel operator recently announcing the most profitable quarter in its 117-year history, thanks in part to those record shipping rates. Well, John Deere union employees are back to work. That's after UAW members voted to approve a new contract with the company. It's reported 61% of union members approved the deal. The six-year agreement includes an $8,400 signing bonus, a 20% increase in wages over the lifetime of the contract, with 10% coming this year. Also, a return of cost of living adjustments and enhanced retirement options. The agreement was the third contract offer from the company since the strike started on October 14th. Well, big demand here at Home for Meat is helping Tyson Foods' bottom line. The company reporting stronger than expected quarterly profits. It's reporting a double-digit jump in sales and earnings for the fourth quarter. It says it was a record quarter for its beef segment in particular. That's despite a 20% increase in prices. But it says inflation is impacting the business, with Tyson's CEO saying, quote, as rates of inflation continue, so will our pricing actions, end quote. That's it for the news. Well, when we come back, heavy rains in the northwest in Canada had a devastating impact on dairy. We will check in with Mike Hoffman for the latest forecast next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Stein Seed. Through extensive research, decades of expertise, and stronger industry relationships, it's easy to see why Stein has yield, plus so much more. Discover the Yield Plus Advantage at SteinSeed.com. Meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us now with weather. Mike, Washington State and British Columbia seen historic flooding this week. There are pictures of farmers rescuing cows. They actually had to temporarily halt the movement of wheat and canola from Canada. NASA could even see the severe flooding from space earlier this week, Mike. Good morning, Chiatai. No doubt that was a huge storm system. We have some more coming this week, but none of them look quite as heavy as that one. Thank goodness. You can see, though, even without including some of that rain that we saw this past week, it's been turning wetter in the Pacific Northwest, a few spots through the West, but it's still generally dry in the root zone. Generally wet southern Mississippi and Tennessee valleys and generally wet parts of the Great Lakes drought monitor. Uh, has actually improved in many parts of the country over the past six months or so, especially the uh, Plain States, parts of the Southwest and parts of the Northwest. But there are still some real issues there with uh, a good chunk of the western third of the country still in extreme to exceptional drought conditions. Let's check out the uh, map this week. We have some systems coming east. You can see the ridge over the west coast, though as we move through this weekend, and that's uh, drying things out after that big storm that came through earlier last week. You can see the uh, system moving through the Great Lakes into the northeast will cause some rain turning to snow in many places. It'll dry out in between, but another trough digging into the west as we head through the middle of the week. And some models are showing this becoming a pretty strong system, picking up a lot of golf moisture. And that's the one I'm showing here. So they kind of go back and forth. Keep that in mind. This is Friday, Black Friday, right after Thanksgiving and into that following weekend. And we see a pretty strong storm system on this model. So something to watch 
as we head through later this week and into this coming weekend. Lots of folks will be traveling and this uh, system could cause some issues. Hopefully it's a lot weaker than that model shows. Let's check out our uh, Monday forecast and as we go day by day across the lower 48. Showers, even some thunderstorms along the east coast there, mid-Atlantic on into uh, Florida. Snow showers behind this system then with accumulating snow, parts of the Great Lakes area and on into uh, eastern Canada. Rain and a bit of mountain snow in the uh, Pacific Northwest. That system dives into the middle of the country uh, and you can see some uh, snow, mainly light snow, northern plain states back into the central Rockies. Showers then farther east across the lower Great Lakes, scattered showers on toward the Gulf Coast. None of this appears to be heavy at this point, but as that system moves northeastward, we will see another one perhaps developing along this front in the southern Mississippi Valley. That gives some pretty good chances for rain down there. Again, there's a lot of question marks later this week and into this coming weekend with those systems there. Another system coming into the northern Rockies, Pacific Northwest. 30 day outlook for temperatures. This will take us uh, close to Christmas time. I'm going below normal from uh, Tennessee all the way through the Northern Plains, Great Lakes, near normal for the rest of the Southeast, above normal far Northwest and much of the Four Corner region into Southern California. 30 day outlook for precipitation, lots of below normal through the Southern tier estates, but Southern Appalachians northward above normal and Central Rockies northwestward, probably above normal as well. Tyne. Thanks, Mike. Well, from President Biden meeting with Xi Jinping this week to inflation on the rise, we'll set down with three ag economists next. U.S. Farm Report on the Road from the Missouri Governor's Conference on Agriculture is brought to you by the Missouri Department of Agriculture, celebrating the determination and tenacity of Missouri's farmers and ranchers. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report here from the 49th Annual Missouri's Governor Conference on Agriculture. A lot to focus on. Seth, starting with you, high-level talks this week between President Biden as well as Xi Jinping. Not a lot of expectations that the two would talk about trade. They did hit on trade. Uh, but, you know, when you look at coming to the end of this phase one trade deal, do you think that we are going to see some last-minute purchases come through from China? I think it's always good to restart those conversations. Obviously, you know, we went, we, we had a record trade year here closing in in October. The reason for that is because China came back in and was a huge buyer. Nice to see the rest of our customers also sticking in, but uh, you know, I think they're absolutely an important customer. Great to continue talking to trade because we want to hit a new record, we're going to need them. Well, and I mean, there's been a lot of debate. Is China buying because they want to fulfill those commitments or are they buying because they need it? And Bill, overall, when you look at it, they're still not hitting the targets that were set in that phase one agreement as we close on this two-year deal. But when you look at dairy, has dairy demand fared pretty well? Uh, yes, it has. Um, we've had a, a nice run of uh, exports here. In fact, in our September commercial disappearance numbers, which weren't really good, uh, the only reason that they weren't as worse than what they were was because of the exports, because our domestic demand was down below a year ago. Yeah, and, and you know, Scott, when you look at it overall, though, what grade would you give this phase one agreement? Uh, you know, when you look at, at not only the ag buys, but also some of the other commitments on, on biotech that they've made? Yeah, so I think we have to give them a fairly high grade. I, again, I remind us it's in the middle of the pandemic uh, that they also equally struggled with that perhaps we got stronger trade than otherwise would be the case. And you take other things like uh, a hog herd in China that, that certainly uh, had issues with ASF. 
I think some of that affected things like dairy trade. So all in all, I give them a fairly high grade, uh, maybe not an A at this point. We want more trade going forward, not less. Well, I mean, Seth, when you look at some of the 10-year projections that USDA put out, I mean, it's hard to put a projection on, on China for this coming year, let alone 10 years from now. But one thing that private analysts did mention is they didn't feel like maybe the sustainable aviation fuel and the, and the renewable diesel, that that was incorporated into soybean prices in that 10-year deal. So as a USDA economist, do you not believe that this is going to be soybeans ethanol moment, or is it too early to incorporate those numbers in? So I think it's too early to incorporate things like SAF, sustainable aviation fuel. I think from our position, at USDA, it's we want to make sure uh, U.S. feedstocks are at the table when SAF decisions come down. So for us, that's the most crucial element. When it comes to biodiesel, uh, I think that we always concerned, you know, growth in renewable diesel, concerns about competition between renewable diesel and fame, right? So there is growth there, and it's pretty sharp growth, but we got to expect that there'll be some competition given where we've seen soybean oil prices run to. Well, and when you look at the demand, uh, you know, some saying it won't really be until 2023 that we realize some of these plants that are coming online and it will really be this demand boon uh, for, for U.S. soybeans. But when you look at this next year, Bill, I mean, there's a lot of challenges that farmers are facing heading into this next planting season, including when you look at fertilizer prices. Heard from a Missouri farmer this week, his most recent quote for anhydrous ammonia, $14.50 a ton. He thought that wouldn't hit that price until this spring. We're already seeing it. Do you think that there is something that could resolve those issues? Well, it's tough to see it right now because of the price of uh, energy, where that's at, and that continues to push uh, fertilizer prices up, and, and that's you know not counting into, uh, taking into account the uh, supply chain uh, issues that we've got. And unfortunately, here in the Midwest, we're getting hit a little bit harder with the inflationary pressures because of that transportation uh, issue, and that's impacting all that energy. So some are hoping that things will drop as we go into the spring, but you know, at the moment, it's uh, kind of tough to see if that's going to happen. I mean, Scott, do you agree with that? With everything at play right now, do you think that we could see some of these input prices ease as we head into the spring growing season? I think it's tough to see a lot of easing relative to where we're at today. Just the bottlenecks and try, trying to get products, re regardless of the product you talk about, from wherever its origin is to producers, I think is going to continue to be a struggle. And that's costs that we're facing in terms of, of movement of that product, as well as just overall labor shortage uh, in, in trying to move those products. I think all of that makes it difficult to get a lot of break between now and next spring. Well, Seth, I know you're having some of these conversations with the White House. We need to take a break, but later on the show, I'm going to ask you about that as we head into this next growing season. But let's take a short break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's November 23rd online auction. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. Well, inflation and supply chain are issues impacting the ag economy as well as the general economy. And John Phipps talks about what's driving it all at This Week in John's World. Last week, I talked about the excess savings or the savings above pre-pandemic normal. It has reached nearly $3 trillion by now. We have also had several stories in the news about uh, uh, supply chain failures. Okay, these two factors are starting to collide head on. First, let's get some idea of what consumer spending amounts to. A good round number is $14 trillion, which is roughly 70% of our $21 trillion gross domestic product. 
The excess savings then represents about 20% more spending. Consumer spending is divided into goods, durable and non-durable, and services. Services include everything from restaurants to attorneys. Services comprise about 45% of spending and goods the remaining 55% or $7.5 trillion. Up until the pandemic, these numbers and trends were predictable to the point of boring. They grew slowly and stayed roughly proportionate. COVID stirred things up. While we don't know and won't for a few years whether the goods versus services split will return to former numbers, buying stuff seems to be the early trend. Okay, let's assume this trend holds and most of the savings are spent on stuff, goods. Adding most of that additional 20% would be a whopping increase under normal supply chain circumstances, like back in the good old days of 2018. For an impaired system with significant headaches, such a demand increase virtually ensures longer-term overload and delivery problems, not to mention demand-driven inflation. Americans seem ready to shop and spend, with trillions burning a hole in our collective pocket. Meanwhile, many service providers, especially in the hospitality sector, are already on the brink and the labor shortage will hamper their ability to take advantage of any demand boost. Demographics show most excess savings are held by older people, not free-spending kids in their 40s. Now add in the fact that all those savings aren't earning very much interest while the prices of many items jump. These contradicting factors make predicting consumer spending pretty tricky. If a buying spree does come about, which is not a sure thing, it will certainly pressure consumer inflation and prolong supply chain problems. After all, why would supply chain links invest in what could soon be excess capacity after that money is burned through? It boils down to the question of how fast can we spend $3 trillion? We may be about to find out. Thank you, John. And we heard from a few of you last week. Don't forget, you can email him your thoughts on this topic at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, when we come back, we're off to Pennsylvania for Tractor Tales this week. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Kubota. Together, we do more. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're Pennsylvania-bound to learn about a K730 still in its work clothes. We were at a local dealer we went to, Reisman's Farm Supply, and me and Dad walk in, and Dad saw this tractor sitting there, and he said, boy, if my 504 was, if I didn't have my 504, I'd buy that tractor. Well, we ended up plowing a field, and the rear end started clunking the 504, he went back and the guy just knew dad wanted it. And he came up, made him offer, he couldn't refuse, and it came here. <laughs> we didn't know anything about Case of Attic, we didn't know anything about anything on a case, never had a case, always had international. It's been here ever since, it was dad's go-to. If he got on a tractor, this is the one he used till the 830 showed up. We put, I think, a new tire on it, I put new tire rods on the front. Did the radiator on it, a couple water pumps, really didn't do a whole lot to it. It, it died one time and it took me forever to figure out what was wrong with it. Put a 12-volt coil on, it wouldn't run. Put a 6-volt coil on, and it ran. Uh, Dad was reading the book, and it said they'd need a 6-volt coil. We put it on, and started running. I said, okay. Doesn't make any sense. You still have the resistor and stuff. But we'd plow, cut hay. He, anything he did, he used this. Anything I did, I used my MTA. How's <laughs> <There you go. laughs> 
Right now, since the 830 showed up, it's pretty much puts out round bills. It has original paint on it. I've always thought I'd like to restore it, but that original paint, and it matches that one like exactly. <laughs> She's probably just gonna stay in her work clothes. <laughs> I have a set of, I wanna put different tires on it. I have bigger tires to put on it. But if we feature case at our local show, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take it down. They put the, the platform you're up on top. Because on the, if you ever notice on a 730, a straight regular 730, they have like Eagle Hitch, this has three point. And on the, the other 730s, like you sit around it. This one, you're, you're up, you're, you're in the nosebleeds on these. Well, as the pandemic crippled portions of the meat processing supply chain in 2020, Missouri stepped up in multiple ways, and that effort keeps growing. We'll show you how next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. Well, in July, USDA announced $500 million in grant money to expand beef, pork, and poultry processing capacity across the U.S. And as processors wait to see how the money will be dispersed, here in Missouri, $20 million has already been sent to more than 180 processors across the state. That's as the state made sure agriculture had the tools and funds to pivot during the pandemic. Home to 95,000 farms, Missouri agriculture hasn't skipped a beat. Our theme is about the grit and determination that Missouri agriculture has had over the last two years. Chris Chen is the director of Missouri Agriculture, who's a farmer and pork producer herself. We always think every year things can't get any worse, um, but it seems like some years they do. She says during the height of the pandemic in 2020, as many businesses in the U.S. were forced to shut down, she knew agriculture couldn't. Now, one of the first things we did was we worked very closely with Department of Health to make sure that people realized agriculture is essential. From livestock barns to farmers markets, she says Missouri worked to keep agriculture open. But we also wanted to make sure we had more processing, small and medium-sized processors in the state of Missouri for people to turn to if they wanted to get their meat someplace other than a grocery store. A sentiment that was also shared by Missouri Governor Mike Parson. No matter what, what kind of pandemic we're in or crisis we're in, you know, look, the food supply has to be a number one priority. Parson says with no playbook or manual on how to navigate the pandemic, daily decisions were essential to keep agriculture going. We waived over 600 regulatory bureaucratic uh, issues. And I'm not for sure they should ever been there in the first place. But anyhow, that's another discussion to have another day. Those decisions were also a focus for Chen and the Missouri Department of Agriculture, as the Missouri legislature provided $20 million to help grow meat processing capacity. We're happy to say that because of that $20 million that the legislature gave to us, we were able to get 27 new state-inspected facilities open in the state of Missouri. In only a six-month window, Chen says 180 processing facilities overall received a portion of the $20 million including a new $3 million program with the University of Missouri. And we were able to meet with our Director of Agriculture, Chris Chen, and we were brainstorming a little bit about what is the best way to go ahead and use that money, because if we didn't use it in the CARES um, model, it would go back. The group came back with a workforce development program in the form of two mobile meat processing units to help train and develop more labor. And in one case, we're working a model for some that are incarcerated that would be coming out of our, our system as justice-involved individuals. Uh, so 
we really can't administer that program from here at the university. We need to take it out into the state. Overall, Chin says the $20 million is already at work. We're glad to see that our farmers and ranchers do have more choices now in making sure they can market to consumers. But as the state worked through the challenges in the COVID-19 pandemic, Parsons says Missouri agriculture showed resilience. You know, the one thing for me as governor, I had no doubt about that. It was one area I necessarily didn't have to worry about because I knew these people in these professions would take care of themselves. And all I had to do is give them the tools to put the toolbox to just keep doing what they do best. And the push to expand meat processing across the state isn't finished. So we're really excited that American Foods Group chose Missouri and Warren County to be the site for their new processing facility. Just announced this week the facility will process 2,400 head of cattle a day. But what that really means to Missouri is it's going to be a plus for not only our livestock producers, but for our grain producers as well. Because the more cattle that we're able to feed in the state of Missouri, the more feed that we're going to use, the more economic development that all of our rural communities are going to see. And Chen says this type of investment is big news for Missouri beef. The beef industry has had a lot of struggles in the last decade, and this is actually a bright spot for them. This is going to be a way if they choose to expand their beef operation, they might be able to bring that next generation back home to their ranch. Now, Chen says if there is a silver lining of the pandemic, it's the attention it brought to the broadband issues that still plague rural areas. And she says as someone who farms and has a business in rural Missouri, she continues to press for solutions that will work. Well, up next, we set back down with our ag economists for more market talk. U.S. Farm Report on the Road from the Missouri Governor's Conference on Agriculture is brought to you by the Missouri Department of Agriculture, celebrating the determination and tenacity of Missouri's farmers and ranchers. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. All right, Seth, you were on a Farm Journal Farm Country update a couple weeks ago, and someone from Rabo Agrofinance was asked, do you think input prices will ease heading into next year? And they said, well, if you're betting on that, you're betting on Vladimir Putin as well as Xi Jinping. Likelihood, not very high. Do you agree with that? And what type of conversations are you having with the Ag Secretary right now to convey those challenges that producers face? Yeah, so, so to answer the question right up front, I think we're gonna have these challenges with prices all the way through the period where producers are making those expenditures. So I think we're looking at it through spring. Talk to the secretary, pulled up a couple extension budgets, say, here's what folks are looking at now for fall applications. Here's what they're looking like, looking at for chemistry, general CPI for truck repairs, all of this. Well, and you talk to some producers right now and they're saying, listen, any kind of cushion that I'm having for next year, as these input prices to continue to, to, to climb, that's, that's going away. But Bill, as you look at, at 2022, what commodity do you think holds the best price potential next year? Well, it looks to be, at the moment, wheat uh, because of the shortfall that we've got uh, around the world, especially in our northern plains and going up into Canada, just a massive shortfall uh, with uh, production there. And uh, even though Australia maybe is going to have a, a fairly large crop, there's some question about what the uh, quality is going to be. So at the moment, that seems to be an area that we'll see growth because uh, we are seeing some dryness in the uh, you know, southern plains as well. So that very well could help, uh, and it has, I believe, buoyed some of our other commodities already. Yeah, oats, wheat, co or cotton, uh, canola. I mean, just some, some, some impressive prices. On the livestock side, Scott, what commodity do you think uh, we could see the biggest price potential on next year? 
So I keep saying cattle is where I can be relatively bullish as we look into next year. And, and a lot of that for me has to do with the, the drought areas of the west, the drought areas of the northern plains. We've moved a lot of cattle earlier than normal. When you look at, at placements uh, year to date, uh, relative to that beginning feeder cattle supply outside uh, feed yards, we've been, we've been placing at a fairly hefty rate. So I think there's a window coming here of higher cattle prices. And, and one can get very bullish even beyond you know, 2022 in terms of just where we head. And I just remind us, although not the 2012 drought that we've had in some parts of the country, it's significant for many cattle producers. Do you think the latest reports out of USDA like cattle on feed, are those accurately representing that? Or is it a little slower for those numbers to really be realized in that? Yeah, so I think it's, a, it's been a little bit slow. We, again, I keep saying we're pulling cattle into feed yards sooner than normal, right? If we don't have pasture for them, I think in some cases we've just seen those calves move a little sooner to the feed yards. So the window that I think is coming in the USDA reports that get us more bullish will be there. But what about dairy? Because, you know, talking to dairy producers, inflation right now really slowing the growth that we had seen in the dairy industry. Do you think that does support milk prices next year? Yes, it, it should. We went through a pretty rough couple of months in profitability there during the summer. The outlook right now is not terrible for things, but like I say, that's, you know, at our current feed prices, let alone if they might go higher. So we are seeing, uh, I'm expecting maybe a little bit of a bump up in the milk production uh, report for October, but not much. And we're looking at slow growth, if not maybe a little bit of, uh, you know, contraction. It's been amazing how quickly dairy producers turned around uh, their dairy herd and uh, seeing those cow numbers drop off. Well, Seth, I mean, when you look at spring, we had some analysts talking about hyperinflation and what impact it could have. I mean, they were talking like $40 wheat at the time, okay? So very far-fetched, but as inflation is here, some folks thinking that maybe it could get into double digits. What impact do you think that could have on commodity prices? So I think my, my I had a discussion with the secretary last week on a return squeeze, quite honestly. You see some moderation of commodity prices. So crop prices coming down while input prices go up, putting a, a real squeeze on returns. That's my bigger fear. I think we'll actually have, under normal conditions, moderating commodity prices in the face of higher inputs, making it make 22 a challenge. Scott, realistically, I mean, on this topic of inflation, we saw the latest consumer price index, not pretty. And you look at everything that was, you know, you look at even uh, equipment, uh, you know, values and, and, and vehicle, you know, the, the values of, of, of vehicles right now. I mean, just everything is climbing. Do you think we could see inflation get into the double digit area? So perhaps, but I'm not there yet. I, I still think some of the bottlenecks that are out there are creating some of this pressure for higher prices. And if we can clear those up as we get into 2022, maybe that eases some of the inflation that, that we've been seeing of late. I'm, I'm careful not to say that's for certain at this point because that flies in the face of what we've been seeing uh, for, for months now. But uh, I, I, I do hope maybe more normal returns. I just worry about the risk that we face in production agriculture from all of these inputs that have been rising. All right, thank you three for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. Let's take a quick break and then we have much more to cover this weekend on U.S. Farm Report.
Well, it's being dubbed meatflation. The latest consumer price index shows retail beef prices surged 20% in a year and pork prices are up 14%. But for one local meat processor here in Missouri, status quo isn't the solution as these cattle producers are shaking up the meat industry. Just 65 miles south of Kansas City. We are standing in front of our beef processing facility in Butler, Missouri. Is where you'll find a meat company shaking up status quo. Not only do we actually process beef, we also process hogs and bison as well. We take in cattle for private label producers, hogs for private label producers, and bison for private label producers. With their own Herzog Farms private label as well, it's a nice compliment to the other side of their cattle business. We got into backgrounding and growing cattle, finishing cattle, running cattle on grass, and there's such a need, an inconsistent process and a processing facility. It's a family business and one that started as a livestock market 30 years ago. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, but what we're trying to do is iron out some inconsistencies that were flawed in the processing business. As this processing facility finds footing, we have some big markets that we can tap into. It's just going to take time to tap into them. The processing part was built in just eight months, but the Herzogs say no corners were cut. We wanted to add technology because we wanted to iron out the inconsistencies that are in the processing side of things and you cannot iron those out if you do cut corners. With hundreds of thousands of dollars invested into technology for this new facility, he says it's the technology that helps get the quality right. If you have a consistent product with your genetics of your animals and you harvest them the same way every single time, every time you take product to your restaurant or take it to the end user, you should have consistency. And while this family-owned business says they're investing the money to do it right, it's challenging the norms that could be the biggest breakthrough. First of all, we're cattle producers, and the fact that we are cattle producers kind of sets us apart from maybe the next guy that's a processor that's not a producer. Post after post on social media, what the Herzogs produce comes with pride, even if carving out a new path isn't always the easiest route. So the toughest thing is just to build the relationships, to be able to move all your products throughout the building and out the back door and just kind of stay solvent. Today, this facility is up and running without any investors or federal or state funds, with even more room to possibly grow. I think we'll continue to grow on a local level with local restaurants, local end users. I mean, our goal is never to go into a huge chain grocery store or to a huge chain restaurant, but there's enough demand locally, even within a, their proximity to Kansas City, there's enough demand right there to more than support a facility like this. Now, the Herzogs did talk about country of origin labeling during our visit. They are firm believers that the U.S. raised and processed meat products should be labeled as such. All right, when we come back, John Phipps. Did KXL pipeline cancellation raise gasoline prices? U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Stein Seed. For more than 50 years, Stein has delivered the most advanced corn and soybean genetics available. Through relationships, data, and expertise, Stein has Yield Plus so much more. Discover Yield Plus at SteinSeed.com. After oil prices surge, reports this week say Asia is looking to release oil reserves. That's after the U.S. made the request during meetings with China and Japan this week. But it's oil prices and Biden's shift to electric that have also sparked questions about pipelines here in the U.S. Here's John Phipps. From Dave Finn in Curtis, Washington, 
The economy is a very complex web, but do you really believe that campaign statements and early actions by the Biden administration had no effect on fuel prices? Stopping two major pipeline projects, restricting drilling on federal lands, and the general animosity toward carbon fuels production had no effect on prices? Just coincidence? Well, Dave, they may have had some effect, but certainly not much, I think. The impact of the pipeline completion was always years in the future. Gasoline prices follow current oil prices and some other factors like inventories and refining capacity. If Biden were to reverse course tomorrow, it would take years for KXL oil to reach refineries in Texas. Even then, because tar sands oil is heavy and sour, requiring specific refineries, most experts expected it would be used to just replace Venezuelan imports, a similar kind of petroleum. I'm guessing the other pipeline you refer to is Minnesota number three replacement line, which is about three quarters finished and has not been canceled yet. If it does come online, the old number three pipeline will be closed, so it, it will provide little new capacity. The economic impact of opening drilling on federal lands is even farther in the future. I showed this last week, but due to, but this is in a different form, but due to tight oil fragging, which is still 15% below 2020, but increasing thanks to $80 oil, our petroleum imports are virtually matched by our exports, mostly as finished products like gasoline and liquid natural gas. We simply aren't spending gobs of money to OPEC+, Saudi Arabia, or other Persian Gulf countries. We're buying mostly from Canada and Mexico. It is hard for those of us who remember the 80s to comprehend the U.S. as a net petroleum exporter, but we are really close. Worries about dependence on imported oil have little basis. One reason we're both buying and selling is our refinery locations. There are a whole bunch of them in the Gulf and very few on the coasts. Supply simply doesn't match up with where people want to buy gas. Often importing or exporting makes the most sense. Also remember, the U.S. has not been built a new refinery since 1977. Location is thus a big factor in gas prices, as well as state taxes. If the KXL pipeline cancellation has any impact on gas prices today, it is trivial compared to current oil economics and domestic oil production. When we come back, how can a bale of hay give back to FFA? That's next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. Well, bale wrap has not been immune to the supply chain challenges. Resin was in high demand last year, and that means anything resin-based is in short supply now. But that's not stopping one Missouri company from creating a bale wrap that does good. A patriotic hay bale. As you've seen in many hay fields across the country here in the last few years, and it's, a, it's definitely been a growing trend. Is one that inspired a new tribute. We saw the passion uh, people had about the American flag net wrap, and I was just challenged with the idea of coming, some, coming up with a product 
that people would be just as passionate for. And with a goal to support youth leadership in agriculture, the idea the team at Missouri-based Jones Companies created is this. It's half blue and half gold, and then we uh, we kept the the traditional bale tough two-stripe uh, two indicator. A tribute to National FFA, they teamed up with FFA earlier this year, and a portion of the blue and gold wrap sales will go to FFA to support future leaders. If we can do something and give back to an organization like FFA, and, and we do things with Convoy Hope and other, other organizations, um, that's that's really that kind of goes back to our our overall mindset and goal of what we try to do as a company. Even the severe supply chain challenges aren't enough to put the company's goal on hold. There's a lot of planning, especially with the supply chain issues that everybody's seeing right now. Um, you know, you've we've we've got to work hand in hand with the manufacturer. Uh, we've got to you know worry about ordering the right amount of product, and uh, then obviously finding you know the you know, the distribution channels for, for such product. As Jones Companies and their new e-commerce site work to support all of agriculture. Exaga.com is an e-commerce website, but it's much more than that. It's, it's a website that we designed to revolve around agriculture and, and for the producers that put the clothing on our bodies and the food on our tables. Production is underway now, and Jared says the product will be available on agazaga.com. Well, that does it for the U.S. Farm Report this weekend from the Missouri Governor's Conference. And make sure to join us next weekend for our annual Harvest of Thanks special. From a special delivery of a life-saving rescue in Virginia to an Oklahoma rancher who was near death as a wave of wildfires raged toward him with nowhere to go. We'll have some truly remarkable stories to share with you. That's thanks to BASF and their efforts to support farmers and ranchers and everyone in agriculture to get the job done. All right, we hope you join us next weekend for that special as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.